this conversation is going into space. It's pretty exciting. Cool. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, no, it's cool. Do you? Um, I meant that too. Um, yeah, I mean, like everything goes into space now. It's really not special in any way. Except if someone finds it, the coal. Yeah, if like for some reason our this particular Facebook Messenger call bitstream while being reflected off of a satellite somehow gets picked up by an alien intelligence. I mean, that could be this could be their introduction to humankind, human intelligence. Yeah. And then they arrive on Earth and they say, "I want to speak to the ones called the Tennis Tragic." <laughs> 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 yes. Who is this Novak Djokovic? That you speak of. <laughs> <laughs> and then all the no Novak haters go, no, no. What about Roger and Rafa? Yeah. Surely you aliens want to meet them. Right. I mean, Novak, come on, he only has 18. <laughs> I mean, he won the most recent one, but let's not get wrapped up in who won the last slam puny humans. I said I want to speak to Novak. <laughs> Novak would would probably be the choice of an alien intelligence in terms of like who is the greatest player of all time. Hmm. You know, just like a cold analytical approach would um, I think come to that conclusion. So you're assuming that the alien intelligence will be cold and analytical? Yes. For some reason, I don't know why. I feel I figure any any intelligence that is capable of, you know, of uh, like you know interstellar travel is sophisticated enough to like kind of cut through all the bullshit and really just analyze things based on objective reality. Okay, but if we take the Star Trek universe, we've got a race like the Betazoid. Hmm race and they feel emotions like Deanna Troy is going I'm feeling great joy and <laughs> feelings of fear uh, no it, so maybe that'd be a, like a, a really emotionally intense race yeah you know I feel I'm disappointed in myself for, for you know only for imagining an alien intelligence that's only just detached and cool like i think you know the vulcans and the romulans would would you know both be djokovic fans i think the betazoids 100 percent federer um klingons rafa obviously just oh yeah that's a good one definitely but you know the kind of the right attitude and you know, energy for, to be Rafa fans. Uh, but there's a lot of intelligences in the in the galaxy, in the Star Trek universe, so. And there's a player for each of those intelligences. That's right. We'll have to break it down, make a little chart. Hey, did the, did the tennis podcast um, ask for a photo of Bagel? Oh, what, the tennis podcast? Yeah, did they? Uh, did they want <laughs> some kind of image of Bagel, the cat? They were doing a they were doing a contest where they were asking people to tag them with pictures of their cats, uh, not their cats, their pets, 
watching the tennis. Because they're, you know, they're pet fans. Catherine Whitaker's a big dog fan and dog person. She has a dog named Billie Jean. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't retweet my photo. I wonder if it was because, um, like, it was like a photo of Bagel in bed. And maybe, maybe they're like, oh, this is a little weird. And he wasn't really watching the tennis, you know? I mean, like, he some was pets. ignoring Dominic Team. <laughs> That's right. Yes. He's like, Dom, Dominic doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> yeah. Unless, um, unless he's in his leather harness, I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much his attitude. Yep. Yeah, let's talk um, about the yeah. Herdlicka thing. Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, would you like would you like to describe what happened? Um, so during like Jane Herdlicker gives a a sort of wrap up of the Australian Open. She talks about the champion and the finalist and the trials and tribulations of putting on the Australian Open, thanking all the people. Um and she did this before each final, and in the the women's final went pretty smoothly. And the men's in the men's final, she thanked the Victorian government for putting on the tournament, and the Victorian government got booed by the crowd present. Um, the workers, like when she mentioned the workers that worked tirelessly to put on the the event, they got a big cheer, but the Victorian government, the ones that have been responsible for locking down the population of Melbourne, um, and also the players for that two-week quarantine, they got a big boo, a really big audible boo. There are many other people to thank that enabled this great night to take place in the last couple of weeks. The top of that list is the Victorian government. Without you, we could not have done this. When you're finished. And it was an awkward moment, right? Because, you know, you're, it's, it's supposed to be all nice. The sponsors are there and the players are there and you, you want the ceremony to go smoothly. But the crowd made it all awkward for her liquor. Yeah, um, I didn't realize that. I didn't think that the workers got booed. The, the first round of booing. No, no, they didn't. I was, I was saying the workers, they got a big cheer when, yes. like, so it was like the crowd was extremely responsive. Like, they liked some things. And a huge thank you to the thousands of people who came to work every day over the last three weeks. But they didn't like the government. Well, more than that, they, they didn't like the mention of the vaccine rollout. As so, well, so yeah. Th that was the first thing that triggered some booing response. Like, heard like I said something about how, um, you know, like, there's hope for the future because the vaccine rollout's about to begin. And then people were like, boo, we don't like, you know, fuck vaccines. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that, you know, it's, it, this is the thing. How do you interpret a crowd's anger? 
and with vaccinations on the way, rolling out in many countries around the world, it's now a time for optimism and hope for the future. They booed that and then, right, and then there was like a little aside where she thanked the workers and that got a good round of applause, but then she tried to thank the Victorian government, which got an even bigger round of boos. Right, you're right. That's the first boo was for the vaccine. But if you listen to that um, exchange, there's before the the big boos kind of start, there's some sort of like yelling in the crowd and mm. some back and forth, and then the boos come. So I wonder if, like, the thing that initiated that wasn't just like an overwhelming feeling in the crowd that we don't like vaccines, because I think that's very hard to believe. It's not, there's a, there is only a small number of people who are, sort of skeptical about the vaccine right but that someone said something uh maybe anti-vaccine like an anti-vaxxer view kind mm. of thing. and then and then and there was a back and forth and then so, and then the booze happened and we so we it's hard to know exactly what they were booing about there even though it it was sparked by mention of the vaccine mm. uh, you know i hadn't even considered that possibility that somebody might have been like vaccines are dumb and then people booed that person and not necessarily what Herdlicka said um yeah i'll have to go back and like do some real like rigorous uh data analysis you know like how sometimes on, on like a tv show they'll they'll zoom in on they've got like a camera feed of something and they just like zoom in on it the really pixelated section and then like enhance it i think we can we have the technology to do that in audio so uh maybe maybe we'll get to the bottom of it if we analyze it properly okay great yeah so um but yeah i completely agree that the it doesn't make sense that the vaccine mention would get booed i mean i, I was kind of going back and forth with you guys about this just trying to figure it out and i i think i mean may, i might be upset that the vaccine is only getting rolled out now when you know like the u.s and the uk it's been three months plus so after all of the sacrifices and all the work that people have done to try and keep coronavirus down to nothing, they're getting it really late, and that must be frustrating. Um, that was one of my yeah, thoughts. Yeah, that's one possibility. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then booing the government, I think there's just all kinds of reasons. people. I mean, like, people rarely cheer the government, even if the government did good. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to hate the government for a variety of reasons. You might hate them because you disagree with their coronavirus policy, or you might boo them because they're like, you think that they haven't been good enough on the coronavirus or I, I imagine people who actually went to a live tennis event during this, like for the most part, aren't too worried about it, but maybe people were annoyed at the snap lockdown and the, the kind of the like intensity of the messaging, like every time I listen to Premier Andrews like talk about it, I'm just like, wow, this is this is a really intense way this guy has of communicating about it. Like he he communicates with an urgency that I would I imagine some people find is really anxiety inducing. Yeah. Well, look, I think um, the there's always a reason to. Under under our society, anyway, like the government is 
often at odds with the people and maybe, you know, seen as corrupt or benefiting big business or out of touch. They get paid a lot more than than most people do mm. and they drive around in cars you know they yeah they, they're not sort of one of us right and when when you're at the tennis when you're at a sporting event in a crowd there's that kind of i don't know we you, you feel maybe like you're part of just the general population and those people up there in suits aren't aren't you but uh, adding to that, I think, is the way the Victorian government's dealt with um, coronavirus. They've been very aggressive with their lockdowns, even more aggressive than the rest of Australia. Yes. Like, more aggressive than Berejiklian, and the Premier of New South Wales, and they often sort of cop criticism from the federal government, saying, you know, uh, we don't really agree with Victoria, what they're doing. There hasn't been a clash, but they've have kind of said that they could be a bit more um it could be a bit looser with the quarantine measures um or more targeted um but the mm. victorian government have just stuck to that like we need we need if there's one case we need to go hard and lock it down so that things don't get out of control and um they've even locked down yeah, they've done a few pretty bad things. Like earlier on, there was um, there was a little outbreak, and some people in a in public housing um, apartment towers. They got locked down with police, like not letting them leave. Yeah, uh, and um, and it was like it was targeted at the public housing, mainly African. Um, Middle Eastern um, non-white residents lived there, and meanwhile, uh, other other white towers, um, what other non-public housing towers that were just as vulnerable, that were in the same area, weren't getting the same level of police attention. Yep. So, I don't know. There's been there's been definitely some controversial things that you could, and just the fact that everyone's freedom has been taken away in some people's view, unnecessarily, that's responsible for the booing, I'd say. Yep. Yeah, so... Right, I think kind of my overarching takeaway from all of that is it's just, like, all these different reasons why the booing might have happened. You know, like, the whole notion of, like, a post-championship match celebration, like, the the ceremony that is put on by... um, you know, by the governing body of tennis in association with the, in association with their sponsors. And, you know, it's, it's this, there's this pomp and circumstance that as a fan of the sport, I, I tend to appreciate. Me um, too. There's, there's a lot I like about it. Like I, I really love, I love that tennis asks the runner up to speak. And yes. Um, that's cool and i think that's often a really revealing moment when somebody who who's facing you know who's coming immediately off of one of you know an an extremely disappointing moment in their life and career um has to kind of summon some courage and hopefully grace 
and uh, and 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 speak to the moment and and congratulate their opponent. There's so much good sportsmanship vibe that comes out of these events. Um, but there is there's also just a lot of tedium and you know like the sponsor always wants to speak for five minutes about who knows what you know and like most people don't care they're just these are the people who paid for the right to plaster their name all over everything um and you know heard like i think you know alex was saying he was mostly tuned out and didn't really know what she was going on about and i didn't notice the booing until the second round so you know really the interesting parts are about the athletes and not so much about the officiants but um in this case uh the whole scenario around heard like a speech was was kind of one of the more interesting things that happened that night unfortunately novak's last slam was a year ago it was the last australian open so he could win this one and then we get rafa winning the french and we get federer winning wimbledon <laughs> like that could that could happen as much as as easily as i could imagine yeah, we get breakthrough from Medvedev. We get a breakthrough from Tsitsipas. We get a breakthrough. We just had the breakthrough from teams. Zverev could win one. Like all of a sudden, the the guard might change. But I don't know. I I, I think Medvedev's gonna win. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on that limb. I think he's gonna win, and I I think he's gonna win pretty handily. Right. I think he might as well. I'm seeing um, just. Maybe seeing a few cracks in the in the um, Djokovic, not not so much his game, but just he had that injury, and it could be as as um, as much of a mental force that he is. His his mental game is so strong. Perhaps this whole quarantine stuff and everything he's had to endure in Australia might be too much for him. Whereas Medvedev's looking supremely confident, you know, like you see him, he's just yeah. kind of smirking at the uh, at the journalists as he's talking about his game. You know, he's just he seems extremely confident and on top of it. Yeah, he's he's absolutely ready. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen for him, but he knows he can beat Djokovic. He's been on the stage before and he, you know, he had this epic match against Rafa and took him to a fifth set and he's got, he's got everything he needs to win. Um, you know, as often in, happens in tennis, it may just come down to a few, a few points and key moments who holds their nerve. One thing that impresses me so much about Medvedev is his movement and just the way he, he gets to everything for like a, you know, I don't know, he's six five, six six. But he he like gallops around the the court like an like an antelope or something. He's this <laughs> wild beast. I think Medvedev's gonna win. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on that limb. I think he's gonna win and I I think he's gonna win pretty handily. Thank you, Danielle. Well, this man's quest to be the best is absolutely relentless. He is truly the king of Melbourne Park. And for an unprecedented ninth time, here is your champion for 2021, the Australian Open men's singles champion, Novak Djokovic. All right, Novak Djokovic. He, uh, he won the men's final. I, defeating Daniil Medvedev pretty easily. 
was not a very competitive match. I mean, it, it, I, mean, I thought that Medvedev was close to Djokovic's level, especially in the first set and a bit. Hmm. Um, I mean, Djokovic was really impressive, and I just, I, th- I, I liked Medvedev's, you know, staying in the rallies as well, and maybe just getting a little bit too negative at times. But Djokovic was just supremely calm, and even one stage towards the end of the match, he was there like meditating at the change events. That's I think that was more the difference for me than like mm. their tennis playing ability. His Djokovic's yeah. um, ability to handle the big stage. Yeah, I think a lot of people picked Daniil. I picked Daniil to win easily, I think I said, which in retrospect seems ridiculous. Like, why did I why did I pick against Djokovic? He's won that tournament eight times. Now it's nine. Nine? Or eight? It's eight now. Nine. It's nine now. Um He's never lost in a final there. Like why would you you know? I think like everybody, like a lot of people in the media and the sports media, sports fans, just they, you know, you want to see somebody like Daniil beat one of these top guys in a final. And he, you know, he put up a really good show against Rafa at the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. And so you kind of felt like, yeah, maybe he's got the, he's got what it takes. And this was like, he just didn't have the edge mentally in the whole match. It was like... It was like old Daniil. He was just getting mad, and he wasn't channeling it positively, and he never felt like he was going to turn it around. You know, and, and Djokovic was so steady, and like Djokovic can get rattled and upset. He usually finds a way to turn that into something positive for himself, but he just was never really threatened in that match. Like you never had the sense that Djokovic was feeling the the heat. Um. And of course, Daniil can beat him. He has beaten him multiple times. But to do it in a slam final, it's still still a different ask. And Novak got healthy. You know, he was he looked like he was about to bow out of the tournament. And then what an incredible physical specimen he is to, to recover from that kind of injury and oh, while playing five-set Grand Slam tennis. It's incredible. Yeah, it was very, very good from Djokovic and he was crowned the king of Melbourne Park um, mm-hmm. in the ceremony. Uh, actually, her liquor says that he's the king of Melbourne Park twice. The crowning of the king of Melbourne Park, Novak Djokovic. Congratulations, you are the king of Melbourne Park. You have a very special relationship here in her speech, and then Todd Woodbridge mm. again for a third time. He is truly the king of Melbourne Park. And to me, like, I just couldn't help the comparison between those moments and um, Julius Caesar, the play by Shakespeare where he's offered the crown three times. <laughs> and I was, like, I was really hoping that Djokovic would be like, no, no, no. No, I really, I can't accept it. But, um, what would happen if if he turned down turned down the the crown? Who who we we must have a king. Yeah, what happens is um, 
it becomes Mark Antony, doesn't it? He gets stabbed <laughs> by all the conspirators. <laughs> by um, Federer and Nadal and Kyrgios. <laughs> Senator Kyrgios. Et tu, Nick? So maybe he's oh, wise like to um, just take it. Yeah, poor old tragic Novak. It even like you know, Rafa is the is the king of clay. He is the king of an entire physical material. Yeah. And and so is Roger. Roger is the king of grass. He, he's you know he's. Is he like, though? Do we do we say the king of grass? I think it has been said. I, I think it's it's a little less. Um, it doesn't have quite the same ring to it, but I think he's been called the king of grass and, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's more of like a natural world, like, you know, like a hidden, you know, like a creature of the forest or something. Would yeah. Be the king of grass. Yeah. If, I mean, I, he definitely is a king. If we're like going to go with this, these analogies, um, he definitely has his palace, Federer does, and there's, there must be vast lawns um, in his kingdom that he rules over. And um, and Nadal is indeed the king of clay. So the, the seat of his power is in Paris. And then we've got uh, um, Djokovic now um, in Melbourne Park. He's, he's got his... Um, his kingdom there i think that's kind of kind of apt yeah um you know i i also though i feel like novak perpetually the third wheel never quite getting the respect the adoration the the you know the the respect of his peers and you know it's it's to me it's like that you know roger and rafa they have domains that are represented in the physical world like like dirt, all dirt is owned by Rafa. And whereas Novak, I mean, you could say he's the king of hard courts more generally. He's the king of hard. That doesn't really the king work. king of hard. king of hard. <laughs> and then it's like if you actually like looked at the surface types, you know, like that, you know, it's like, oh, the, the king of acrylic, you know, the, the king of deco turf synthetic material. The king of plexicushion. Mm. The king of sportmaster sports surfaces. Like it just doesn't have the same ring. And, you know, obviously the, the Australian officiants are trying to, you know, lean into his dominance there. and Yeah, it, it works for the Australian Open for them to call him the king of Melbourne Park because they get that they're cool by association or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, but it's still, it's it's like, oh, you just, you're the king of the one place. You're not king of an entire domain. Yeah, you're king of the one place. And it is the lesser of the slams. If we want to rank the importance of the slams, Wimbledon's got to be number one. Um, yeah, U.S. And, Open and maybe U.S. French Open and, and French Open are like equals. are up there vying for number two, yeah. but Australia is clearly the fourth one. 
Yeah, not not in my mind. I mean, but who cares what I think? It it is referred to as the happy slam. I think if you're talking about happiness, it is the number one slam. Yeah, it just suffers from like for so many years. It was, you know, like the players didn't even travel down to Australia. Right. Yeah, it was forgotten. It was far away. Overlooked. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, now it is. It's like one of the. It's taken its place among the four Grand Slams. Yeah, I imagine that like the accessibility of air travel has. Um, has improved greatly in you know the last. 30, 40 years, and that that's a big part of it. Obviously, the popularity of the sport in Asia has contributed. Location notwithstanding, it is the most accessible of the slams. It's the it's the least expensive to attend. It's the one that's actually in the center of it of the city, unlike the other three slams where the the courts are where the grounds are, are like kind of on the fringes of the city or mm. you know out in some suburb. Um, mm. Wimbledon is so exclusive, you know, and, and there's so few available seats and it's in such demand that people queue overnight to attend, yeah. which I find very distasteful and I will never do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, having attended the French and the U S open, I mean, they're both expensive and very crowded. Um, so I think there's a lot to credit the Australian Open and then a lot for Novak Djokovic to, uh, to appreciate about being the king of Melbourne Park, you know, that his, you know, I I don't know what powers they, they invest in the king, you know, like what, what kind of executive power he gets to exercise, you know, does he, does he get to issue decrees? Does he, uh. Does it get to choose a wild card? That would be a good thing for like the king to to have access to. Oh yeah, they should give him some powers. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's just like a bit of a joke. <laughs> yeah, like he comes, he arrives in Melbourne like wearing a wearing a robe, carrying a staff. Yeah, and there's a throne somewhere. Yes, and when he's not playing, he like sits on the throne. It's it's elevated, kind of in the center of you know, of, um, of Melbourne park and it's surrounded. You know where it should be? It should be with the seagulls. Mm. It should be up there with the seagulls on the very roof of Rod Laver and like a helicopter takes him up there to, <laughs> to the roof. And then, and then he's, then the seagulls kind of land on his arm because he's so benevolent and all the birds, nature, he's a friend of nature. Hmm. I like that. Another thing that happened is the protesters, the refugee protesters, interrupted the match. Oh yeah, that was sort of like an overlooked um, little news news bit. There were a yep. couple of people who were carrying on. You want to talk about that briefly? Well, I I've got the um, clips, the audio clips. They managed to stop, the protesters managed to stop a point that was in a rally and 
then that led to Medvedev getting a first serve back and what he won the point. Mm. Like the protesters did actually change, like they they changed the game a little bit. Hmm. And I suppose more importantly, they they got the message out about the government's um, treatment of refugees, which is important. I think, like a lot of people were saying, you know, such like oh, like these idiots. Yeah. But like, what's more important, Australia's treatment of refugees, and like, just using a a tennis match to like disrupting a tennis match to get that um, message out, or like. For everything to be, you know, right and nice and for no one to be disturbed during their tennis watching. Yeah, I um, I don't think the ESPN coverage really touched on what the protest was about. And I think that that must be a tricky thing for, like, the broadcasters to to figure out in real time. Like, do we allow these people their platform? Do we repeat the... The, the statement being made by the protesters. Because I think if they did that, they would be encouraging that behavior. They would basically be saying, like, no matter what you're doing, like if you're an anti-vax protester and you go and you, like, make a scene and start a chant and interrupt a point, are you going to get covered for that? You know, for some people it would be worth it to, like, make their statement. And, you know, obviously it takes some amount of bravery to to stand up and do that at, you know, I don't know if you get arrested in Australia for that. You certainly get removed from the stadium. Yeah, and you cop a big fine as well, mm. um, which they've increased the fines because over the years, in 2016 and 2015, there were also refugee protests at the Australian Open where um, protesters even got onto the court and talked about Australia locking up refugees offshore for many years and um, instead of protecting them and offering them asylum. Um, yeah, I, obviously the government doesn't want this, the government and the, the Tennis Australia um, doesn't want this to be a regular thing and, and so they, they try to give as little oxygen to the protests as possible, you know. You get that, of course, that's going to happen. But yeah. um, the media doesn't have to. The media can be like, oh, you know, interested in what the protesters are saying, and maybe, you know, um, report on that. Like, and that's that's why you do it. That's why you protest because you want to get like a bit of public debate happening. Right. Anyway, I just thought it, I thought it was cool that they they were very brave to do that. Yeah. And righteous, in my opinion. Yep, definitely deserves a mention. As members of the media. Yeah, members of the media, we are. <laughs> Until we have official media credentials, I don't know if we are. We are members of the media, technically. We produce media. No. We're something. We're something. I actually wrote a another letter to the tennis podcast uh, about yeah. about the Herdlicka. Um speech and the reaction to the speech and the booing and um so i i, I might read that um they responded you know with the just a like you know a thank you for the thoughtful essay <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's okay yeah i don't think they're going to uh read it on the air per se i think they were like david it was less, less... <laughs> we don't have our own segment now for you to read essays <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> on every tennis podcast episode. What if what if that was my expectation? Sometimes I I have this feeling when I interact with strangers on the internet that they're going to assume I'm a crazy person by default because that's how I think of people on the internet in the abstract. Now, if somebody reached out to me on the internet, if somebody reached out to me because they heard the tennis tragic and they wanted to get in touch, I would be beyond thrilled. Um, but you know, we also don't have a fan base or any real exposure. We have a fan base. It's small. I don't mean to put them down. Small and dedicated. Uh, Thirty people. But um, yeah, whenever like whenever I reach out to somebody on the internet, like the tennis podcast, I think they're gonna read what I write to them and think I'm just a crazy person, and that at any moment I'm just gonna like cross over from like well-meaning sharing my thoughts to like. Why aren't you guys reading all of my essays on the air? You know, kind of like <laughs> entitlement. <laughs> but it's cool. I think it's just cool that I like, you know, I can send them an email and I know they'll read it. I think that's that's uh, that's the nice thing. And it's it's just like a, another way for me to express myself about tennis. You know, like I write these long form. I have a daily writing practice, so it's. It, it just dovetails with that. I'm like, that morning I was thinking about the herd like a speech because of the chat that we had, and then I just wrote an essay and sent it to them. Hmm. Okay. Well, I love your essays, personally. Cool. Thank you. I, I should just send them to you, too. Um, yeah, please do. Yeah. Uh, that's what I like about the ceremonies is because there's always something funny that happens like mm. I think some of these people like the CEOs of Kia car company or whatever they don't like necessarily speak on that kind of stage very often so they might um, stumble over their words or uh, same with the players they're not necessarily great public speakers yeah. and they've just played a long match and they've like a really intense match where they've lost or won something really big um so and there's a there's an intense need to like this is your one opportunity to thank everybody as well so the um the stakes are quite high and i just think there's always you know mistakes that happen and like the jen brady um uh, Naomi Osaka moment where Osaka asks for Brady's preferred name and then says the opposite name. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, right. There's always these moments of humanity and that you know. Yeah, it's just different from from the play. Uh, that that Osaka Brady moment is funny because you could interpret Osaka's behavior as a sledge, you know. But that's that's the she, thing. She obviously, yeah. Like, <laughs> like it would be a great sledge if she meant it, but I can't see it actually meaning it. Hey Matt, do you do you prefer the name Matt or Matthew? Um, I've always I've sort of preferred Matt, but these days I'm kind of softening to Matthew. But okay, but yeah, I, Matt is the most common name for me. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Matthew. Um. <laughs> like you know I... oh sorry you're doing that I, <laughs> yeah, I was doing a bit <laughs> i met a woman yesterday <clears throat> called lil mm. and um we were at my sister's birthday uh, on the bowling green in petersham mm. and uh 
it was like nice and sunny and there wasn't like much noise out there there were people around but um actually it was cloudy but anyway uh i introduced myself and she said my name is lil and i said oh will mm. and then she said no lil <laughs> short for lillian presumably <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah yeah that's a, that one's a little bit of a it's like a there's a mouth feel to lil it's a little it can be a little awkward well did you guys become friends um i think we didn't become not friends we yeah (laughs) (laughs) that was the first first time and there were the um first time meeting right didn't Um, become not friends i mean that's that's not bad for a first meeting i mean becoming becoming friends in one meeting is you know is uncommon she's the girlfriend of cat a friend of my sister's Mm. um so yeah she just meeting that way but i did talk some other, to some other people about um about tennis like there's uh another friend of mine Alyssa, who's interested who does some charitable work and was wanting to get nick curios on board for her charity mm. um i can't reveal the, the charity at the okay. moment because they're still in negotiations has she spoken to nick she's spoken to his agent mm. i think but it sounds like the kind of thing Nick would want to do, right? Yeah, but I, but I imagine that somebody in his position and somebody who's shown a willingness to to give is probably often fielding requests. So it does make sense that it would go through his agent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and not knowing the type of charity, obviously that that's a factor too. That's one of the, that's a strange element of celebrity life that I imagine is. I don't know what the word is for it. Like you get to a certain level of celebrity and, and uh, renown and suddenly like, you know, businesses want you to, to sponsor. Uh, they want to sponsor you. They want you to represent their product. Uh, charities want you to, you know, lend your voice and platform, you know, your voice to their platform and boost their profile and, you know, and help them out. Like this whole weird thing that most of us don't ever have to contend with. Well, we do in a different way. Like I had um, someone knocking on my door for the Garvin Institute. They do breast cancer research. Um, They wanted money from me. And I had to say... I don't have a lot of money and what I do have I put into um, my union and my and the socialist organization that I'm part of solidarity and then that's you know that's how I that's how I want to make change in the world through those movements like as whilst I appreciate the the charity you you've got going here and I support its ideals it's not the way I can give and like so maybe celebrities need to know that as well they need to know what their limits are and what their mode of using their celebrity platform to give back is Mm. because if you don't really know you 
just well, yeah you, you're gonna be like Naomi Osaka she knows that she's into giving back like by buying women's sporting teams and supporting professionalization of women athletes and protesting for black lives right she can't be she can't be jumping on every charity or just dilute the message and her energy right she certainly takes on a lot of sponsorship opportunities yeah sponsorship but that's like nissin the noodle company i think and yeah i think osaka is one of the um well she was the the highest paid female athlete in the world last year and which which actually makes her one of the highest paid female athletes of all time and uh, a lot of that uh, it's from endorsement mm. yep so i guess she justifies that by like uh have heaps more money to then go and spend buying women's soccer teams and um doing whatever else I want to do with my life to help people. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think people rationalize that sort of work. Like, I feel like when I was, you know, teenage, college age, the notion of like, you know, a band I love choosing to sponsor, like, uh, you know, like to sell their music for like a car ad or something would be like a complete, would be an act of selling out. You know, you're taking something that's incredibly personal to me and you're just, slapping it on some kind of product and uh to me that would cheapen the music um it's kind of different with like somebody like a celebrity athlete where uh, it has no real bearing like if osaka is sponsored by nissan uh noodles um that doesn't that doesn't really affect how I feel about her as a player, but it could. I mean, I did think that like Maria Sharapova, like investing heavily in a chocolate business felt weird to me for some reason. Like, Mm. like it's like, you're an athlete. You're like, you're a very healthy fit person. And yet you're kind of, you're pushing a bunch of like sugary garbage on people. Um, Mm. Yeah, well, I really like planes, right? And so Naomi Osaka also is sponsored by JAL, Japan Airlines. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> and, like, that makes me like her. Also, I just think it's like you're in the business of flying. You know, you fly all over the world. That's to right. be um, a tennis player. And so to have your, like, home airline as your sponsor, um, I don't know, it kind of makes sense to me. Um, but I think there are some other choices like, well, when I was, when I was younger, actually, you know, there was the whole, um, like, you know, Naomi Klein, the, um, the, the globalization, anti-globalization movement, which sort of started in Seattle um, and like companies like Nike in particular were really showing up for their, um, the way they treat, they exploited factory workers in Southeast Asian countries, right? So I just, and Nike was the one. You say, do you say Nike or Nike? Nike. So Nike 
was the poster child or the, the the one that was really you know famous for that exploitation yes um so i couldn't wear nike even though you know adidas or whatever another comp another sports apparel was probably just as bad at exploitation but yeah and i also don't really like ash barty's endorsements of jaguar and vegemite and stuff like that because just because of the way she does it with her social media accounts like they're they're just so they're just so cheesy they're these like social media embedded ads you know like where she's like doing hey this is me having my life in my social media but i'm also going to use this as an opportunity to shamelessly sponsor some kind of company yeah i I, the impression i get from ash though is it's it's almost like she's so private she's not putting any of her actual self forward she's just like i'm gonna sell my persona to whoever wants to pay for it and then they can do whatever they want and that feels particularly creepy like it just Mm. doesn't feel genuine at all and i don't know but it rarely is right like you know um there are all these i don't know if you see all the rolex ads in um in australia but like oh they're so pompous and it's i mean it's rolex you know you spend tens of thousands of dollars on a watch it's it's not for everybody right and they're you know they associate all of these great players with their with their brand and they sponsor all these different high-level tournaments and, you know, like they're trying to project this air of class and... Yeah, so Roger Federer is perfect to sell a Rolex. Perfect, yeah. And then, you know, and but they've got all kinds of top players on the Rolex train. And then they do this weird thing where, like, Rolex-sponsored athletes have to, have to put on the Rolex, um, like, after the match, before they do the interview. Yeah, it's dumb. It's like, this is, it's such a, like, it's the last thing anybody would ever do. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go fetch my Rolex from my bag so that nobody, like, mistakes me for a common person. Yeah, it's so fake. And that's what they're trying to do, is, like, get away from that. Um, they, they want the ads to look genuine, that's why I th- they're trying to do the social media embedded ads. It's just like a person going about right. their day and like they happen to be driving a Jaguar car and they happen to be eating Vegemite. And they don't even necessarily like advertise the product. It's just there. I can imagine taking that to like a real extreme where, you know, you almost have these like, like a, like a cinema verite style you know film of like ash barty like ash barty's kitchen you know and like she wakes up and she puts like the you know the kettle on and she grabs a little bit of toast out of the fridge and up there's some vegemite it's like that spread some vegemite on it is like that it's like that (laughs) so weird sorry i was gonna say like on just on that like david like i i really think it sucks that you have to sponsor companies, that you have to have sponsored sponsorship by these companies because you're like a little enterprise in yourself as a tennis player and you need to build up your capital so that you can employ physios and coaches and pay for travel and 
the uh, little tennis business yourself. Yeah, I do feel like there is a there is a pressure to to obtain sponsorships, and almost every player on tour is sponsored by somebody. I guess Shea Suwei would be like the one weird outlier, but it's just like I'm doing my own thing. Yeah, but like you never see that, and I I think I think they kind of get trapped into it, right? Especially when you're when you're young and up and coming. Just that it starts with like the apparel or the uh, or the racket sponsorship. Like you need that. It it helps. It tangibly helps. Yeah, you need it. You can't then, you can't do it without. Like your parents spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get you to uh, tournaments. You wouldn't be able to do it if you didn't have the money and the help. Yeah, and then you know, and I I also do think like even though these are professional athletes and you know the the top players make a, a pretty good living. Um, you know, at a certain point, like they, they only are able to earn at that level for a certain period of time. So I think there is this extra pressure of like, you know, how many opportunities am I going to get for, I mean, I may not be a Rolex guy, but Timex wants to give me a half mil to like, you know, do some ad shoots or to like have their logo on my, on my shirt. So, um, Timex it is, I guess. Right. I, I kind of get that. Like I disagree with like the whole system and stuff. And I reckon sport should be played for the joy of it and uh, not for the benefit of yeah. these uh, institutions but and these companies. But I get that more than I get like someone like Snoop Dogg doing that who was, you know, like, or like any kind of musician or whatever who's got a lot of money. Yeah. Just like just selling their brands selling out to like what's what is Snoop Dogg's thing? He's some it's some streaming service or something. It's... Well, Snoop, I mean, he's associated with all kinds of things. I mean, he does a, I know he does a bunch of ads for Corona, the beer, right, here in the states. Um, but I think he's the sort of artist who feels like what I produce is commercial anyway and it doesn't really have like any greater meaning and I I think there's also there's a cultural difference um with hip-hop as well where they've you know where I think it's more acceptable and for some reason you know in other like in other genres or other like like musical subcultures it feels more like it's judged more harshly right you know like I mean all kinds of great artists you know great hip-hop artists so like are you know are doing ads selling sprite selling you know whatever um and it's it's not looked down upon because hey you're getting paid like what difference does it make it's it's sort of this it's this it's a luxury to be able to turn that sort of thing down and it's it's rare that people do i think when actually faced with it but it does for me music is so personal that when something you know, at least when I was younger, if if an artist I love, I remember when Modest Mouse sold a song to like Volkswagen, and I was like, oh, I was so disappointed. <laughs> like, it's like, how could you? That song means something to me. You know, I mean, there's like a weird like kind of personal entitlement in that feeling. I think. Um, so I I don't really begrudge artists or athletes for doing it, but it is weirder when an artist does it. Like I feel like. You know, because art is intended to have like a personal impact, and you know, athletes 
actors i mean they're they're kind of it's a they play a different role i don't know don't know how to express it yeah i I know what you mean i i i get it people need money to live but it does seem weird when like an artist already clearly has enough money like more than enough money way more than enough and they still do ads um whereas they could be putting that money back into their art or music or you know like starting their own label or um you know doing doing experimental stuff um but i guess like it's a law of it's again it's kind of a law of capitalism if you've got a brand and you've got money you need to keep expanding and reinvesting back into that brand to make it as robust as possible and they probably do have these right financial advisors or investors or whatever being like uh, modest mouse you just had a number one or you just had a really good album now we really need to capitalize that we can get some money from volkswagen now and um that'd be good for us so you better do it yeah yeah it's hard to hard to fight against that to cut against the grain it w- it would be amazing to see like a professional athlete like a real star like a like a Federer Rafa level star just saying i don't do endorsements cuz they'd be leaving tens of millions of dollars hundreds of millions i mean Roger Federer you know switching from Nike to Uniqlo i mean what did they pay him for that you know, a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars. It might have been a billion dollars. How do you turn that down? Yeah, um, I think you have to have a reason. Like, there is no reason to turn that down if you kind of accept the logic of capitalism. You kind of have to kind of go, what is it going to do? What is it going to mean if I turn that down and be like explicitly against? Um, the the status quo here you Mm. you'd have to really know what you're doing and like make um uh get something else out of that like you'd be in you could see it as investing in people or like an alternative way of doing things um like uh you know um humanity or like you could make a statement and be like the world is fucked we need to we need to really think about um what we what we give money to and the system or whatever like we need to be thinking about education and healthcare and eradicating poverty and all the waste or whatever you know you could you could flip it and if enough people did that you know you could really support movements and really start making change yeah it's just that since the whole world the capitalist world is you know driven by this economic engine you lose power by turning down that kind of thing i I think your your example of osaka earlier is um is illustrative you know like it she she might, t- you know, she takes on all that responsibility and does the sponsorships and she's using that money for 
social good. Now, how much of it she's using, I don't know. I think a more like uh, a particularly impactful statement would be from for one of these athletes to kind of do the the Bill Gates treatment. You know, like I'm dedicated to giving away 99 percent of my wealth. Hmm. You know, I, I don't think that like I mean, I have no idea. I think Roger Federer gives money like I, I feel pretty confident that he he does work for for, you know, for charitable causes and organizations. But I've never seen an athlete make that kind of commitment. Um, of course, that's different for a billionaire, but now we have billionaire athletes. I think Roger is right on the cusp if he's not actually there. And, you know, you have um, somebody like LeBron James, I think, like if you if you add up all of his endorsements and his uh, salary from his NBA playing career, he'll be a billionaire when all is said and done. Yeah, I mean, I just the philanthropy is good, but um, I don't. For me, it doesn't change the system enough. Hmm. Um, players like tennis players going on strike. On the other hand, and like you could. I mean, it takes, yeah, but in that case, it takes more than one person. It takes, like, a player's union to decide that they have a common cause and they want to make a fuss about things. Yeah, because then there's far more money at stake than any one player has. It's about all the investments that all the big companies have in keeping the tour going. That's where you, if you threaten that kind of capital, you can really start making change. Right. Yeah. Like as long as you're accepting the money from, from, you know, these big corporate interests, no matter what you do with it, you're still perpetuating that system. You're still participating in the system. You still got to get, um, everyone's got to get paid though. Yeah. Right. In the world, in the system we live in, that's, that's the way it works. Got to, got to get paid. This has been another episode of The Tennis Tragic. We would be delighted to hear from you. Please send any and all correspondences to tennistragicpod at gmail.com. We are eagerly awaiting your messages of support. We also welcome thoughtful critiques or corrections. Drop us a line and let us know what's on your mind. We would be particularly interested in hearing about your tennis-related dreams or fantasies and will consider any high-quality efforts for dramatic reading on the pod. The Tennis Tragic is made with generous funding from absolutely nobody. We are available for high dollar value endorsements and would be delighted to promote your company, particularly if you would like to provide us with any free material for us to advertise on your behalf. Once again, our electronic mail address is tennistragicpod at gmail.com. Again, that's tennistragicpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant day.